glad about that. Amen. Well, Brother Mark, why don't you come on up? Again, no need for an introduction. Go right ahead, fellas. Go ahead. All righty. Thanks for coming out tonight. I really appreciate uh, the turnout. Uh, tonight's going to be a little different uh, from usual, whereas uh, if you're here on a typical Wednesday night um, in April or in February, it's... Uh, it's been on science. And so tonight it's going to be a little different. We're going to talk about the history of science and individuals of science and people who have studied science and the founding fathers of science. And it's going to be different in that aspect where we're not actually going to be talking about a, a subject. We're going to talk about people who studied different subjects in science. And, and there, there are four different, different areas of, uh, of science that I wanted to point out. Uh, we'll have eight different men that I want to point out in their lives 
and what they believed and what they studied and what they stood for. And then we will uh, look at uh, eight different men total in four different areas of science. So if you could go to the next one there, the uh, four main questions I want to ask tonight were, first of all, who were the founding fathers of science and what did they stand for? You know, we all know, you know, the history of the Bible, at least most of us do. We all know of Moses and Abraham and Isaac. We know, you know, the, the history of our Bible. We know the history of the United States, right? We know the history of history. <laughs> but do we know the history of science? And most of the time, secular colleges and, and high schools don't teach that, what it was based on, what, what the founding fathers believed, and why they started to study science. We're going we're gonna to look at that tonight. Why did, they, why did these men begin to study science? What was their purpose? What was their goal? Why, why did they yearn to, for, for more knowledge? We're going to look at that tonight. We're going to look at, has the search for knowledge always been for the same reasons? And I think we know that answer. And if not, why or when did it change? What, what was the cause of the change? Why, why did the Founding Fathers study science for a different reason than what most people study it today? You know, if you think of your average scientist, you typically think of some weird guy in a lab coat in a laboratory mixing chemicals together. Or you think of, well, today, in our day and age, we believe everything that scientists say is fact. And I don't know how we got to that point, but it's almost as if, well, they're scientists. They, they study data, and they know what they're talking about, so we're not going to question what they, what they believe or what they publish. Well, there should be questioning there. And uh, there was a, a poll put, put out among those in the scientific community uh, last year, and it questioned different scientists what was the most important characteristics or, or most important aspects a scientist should have when they are studying in their field. And, and I found it interesting, number one was honesty, which I found, <laughs> that's kind of funny, but <laughs> number one was honesty. Now down at the bottom of the list was being subject to what your data reveals, because most people go into studying their data with a biased opinion. They don't let the data teach them, they teach the data. And, and I find that very interesting. Very few scientists believe that that, that should be the case. And, and I, I want to show you how these people looked at science tonight. Lastly, who do we have today that will study science for the right reasons? Who's going to stand up? Who's going to fill in that gap? Because, because when it first started out, almost everybody, were, they were Christians. They believed in God. And yet today we have nobody. We have nobody. So we're going to start out on the first slide here with uh, a man by the name of Johannes Kepler. Before I get started, though, I want to go to the Lord in prayer real quick and ask for his blessing tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for, uh, for a home in heaven that you've created for us, God. God, we're just, we're just lowly specks of dust down here, and yet you chose to die for us on the cross and pay, uh, pay for our sins, pay for our debt, and, and make us a home in heaven, God. We thank you for that. God, we thank you for the examples that you've set before us, uh, not just in your word, but in history, Father, those who, who stood the test of time, who did what was right. We thank you for that, God. May you help us to learn something tonight. May you help us to be a blessing to you. God, may you be in the midst of us, as Pastor said earlier. We love you so very much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this first man, Johann Kepler, I talked about him a few weeks, or back in February, I believe. But this man, he lived from 1571 to 1630. And we're going to look at astronomy first. And he, he studied astronomy. He's known by many to be the founding father or the father of astronomy. And he, he studied, he actually started out, he was born in Germany, and he grew up there in Germany. And he, he went to a Lutheran seminary. He wanted to become a theologian. He wanted to become a bishop. And at that point in time, if you guys remember, back in 1517, Martin Luther put, put the 95 Theses on the door. And this was after Martin Luther's time. 
And so Johannes Kepler wanted to do about the same thing. He wanted to become a theologian. He wanted to study God's word. And so he went to a seminary for two years. Two years in, he, he felt as, he, as the Lord was calling him to study astronomy. And in his words, he said, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. And studying astronomy and studying the stars and studying the skies, I'm not, I'm not discovering anything myself. I'm not discovering that's anything that's new. God already put it out there. I'm just showing the rest of the world. And that's what he truly believed. He truly believed that he was going from studying God's word and then adding on studying God's creation. He wasn't switching careers. He wasn't doing anything of that sort. He was just adding something else on. And that's what he truly believed. He, he, he made tremendous discoveries as far as astronomy goes, and he was a brilliant, brilliant scientist. He, he discovered the laws of planetary motion, and he studied celestial mechanics. He was the first man who realized that the planets orbit the sun in an ellipse, like an oval, not, not a circle. Uh, he, he studied the, uh, the phases of the moon. He studied how the, how the earth orbits around the sun. He, and he backed up um, a man by the name of Copernicus. He was the first man who, who said that the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. And he was able to study the skies and the heavens and back up Copernicus. And he was one of the few men during his time who said that, who said that uh, Copernicus was right. So then we go on and we see how much of a Christian he really was, how much did he really believe God. He said this. He said, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God, in regard to the book of nature, it befits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else, of the glory of God. Amen. Of the glory of God. He put God's glory first. And that's the exact opposite of what almost every single scientist does today. <laughs> if, you, if you know a scientist, they're extremely arrogant, they're extremely proudful, because look at me, look at my mind, look how smart I am. But yet, Johann Kepler said, it befits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds. No, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. But rather, above all else, of the glory of God. Put the glory of God first. And that was his goal. That was his yearning. That is why he started to study science. That was his love. His love was for the word of God. His love was for the work of God. And I find it amazing. And I, I truly believe it's all, all because of God. Pastor has given this series on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. It fits perfectly along with what we're teaching on Wednesday night as well. And that's all God. That's all God. So we look at, at Johann Kepler, and he lived 1571 to 1630. We also look at another man who studied astronomy, and many people know this man. His name is Galileo Galilei, and he lived around the same time. He lived from 1564 to 1642, and he's known in the scientific community as the father of the modern scientific method. Can anybody here say to me what the scientific method is? Right? Experiment, observe, hypothesize. Three main steps, experiment, observe, hypothesize. And he was one, one that came up with that. And that is how every scientist should look at their data. They should look at it. They should make an experiment up, observe how the experiment goes, and then make, make a, a theory off of that experiment. And, and he, he was a brilliant man as well. He studied, he studied mathematics. He studied astronomy. He studied physics. And he was put on trial by the Catholic Church for backing up Copernicus's theory. Now, now, we look at Kepler, and he was a Lutheran. And, and Galileo, he was a Catholic. But during this time, the Pope was the leader. He was the foremost voice on any scientific knowledge, on any religious knowledge, on any historical knowledge. He was, he was the person that knew everything. And if you did not agree with the Pope, you were wrong. You were dead wrong. And he was, he was actually excommunicated from the church and put in house arrest for the rest of his life because he backed up a Polish man's theory. <laughs> Copernicus was Polish. 
And he backed up this man's theory rather than what the Pope said. Okay, and I find, I mean, he, that took a lot of guts. That took a lot of guts for a man to do that. He made great advances in the effectiveness of his telescope. They had telescopes at that time, but with his telescope, he was able to see 20 times further than any other person had ever seen in outer space. That's, that's quite a bit. That's quite a bit. He produced theorems on the center of gravity by discovering moons of Jupiter and the planet Saturn. He was the man that first discovered these. And when he discovered the four moons of Jupiter, he realized that they all revolve around Jupiter. Why? Because Jupiter is bigger than those moons. And the moon's body in space will always revolve around something that is bigger than itself. And he discovered that. And before that, everybody thought that the whole solar system rotated around the Earth. Well, how could that be if the sun is bigger than the Earth? And he was able to prove that, showing that the four moons of Jupiter are smaller than Jupiter, so they rotate around Jupiter, and the Earth is smaller than the sun, so it has to follow the same celestial mechanics. It has to. So he was able to prove that theory, and he was able to study theorems on gravity uh, through this all. He also he made a tremendous statement, and this, this blew my mind by a, a Catholic who stated this. But he said this. If we go to the next slide there. <clears throat> He said, the prohibition of science would be contrary to the Bible, which in hundreds of places teaches us how the greatness and the glory of God shine forth marvelously in all his works and is to be read above all in the open book of the heavens. And let no one believe that the reading of the most exalted thoughts which are inscribed upon these pages is to be accomplished through merely staring up at the ratings of the stars. There are such profound secrets and such lofty conceptions that the night laborers and the researchers of hundreds, and yet hundreds of the keenest minds in investigations extending over thousands of years, would not penetrate them. And the delight of the searching and finding endures forever. Endures forever. This guy was a genius. This guy was brilliant. And he put, uh, if you can go back there, he put God above everybody. He put God above everything. He put God above the Pope. He put God. God was first, and, and God's word was first. And as, as, as I've been saying every single Wednesday night, as Christians, we always have to put the scriptures first. We always have to put God's word first. That is what we look at, and then science fits into the Bible, not the other way around. And these men had it right. They put God's word first. They studied his word first, and then they studied science. And then they studied what the area that they were in. And that's how it always should be. That's how it always should be. These men, they blow me away as to the spirituality and the walk with God that they had. If you do any research on these men, they're always talking about the Creator, always talking about how magnificent His creation is. It, it blows me away. So now we're going to look at uh, a, the next area of study in chemistry. And we're going to look at a man by the name of Sir Robert Boyle. And he's known as the father of modern chemistry. This man was also a genius. And he lived from 1627 to 1691. He lived in Great Britain. And he was born to a very wealthy family. His father was an earl. And he was the youngest of 14 children. But his father was what was very wealthy, as I said. And he was able to travel Europe before he was even the age of 14 years old. And before he went off to school, his father made sure that he was able to run his house. So before Robert Boyle ever went to college, he was in charge of his house's finances, his, his house's agricultural aspects, I mean, the, the spiritual aspects of his home, he was in charge of all that because his father wanted to make sure this young man was grounded in the Word of God and grounded in responsibility before he ever went to school. That, wow, what a, what a concept. 
So he, um, he began his career, actually, in writing. He didn't want to study science. He wanted to study writing. And so he began writing ethical and devotional gospel tracts. That's, what, that's how he started out his career. He was writing. So he went to school for writing. He went to Oxford there, and in 1654, he decided to start. He, a bunch of his colleagues were studying the physical sciences at that time. So in 1654, he, he decided to change. He, called, he believed God was calling him to study the phys, physical sciences as well, and he could use his writing through that as well. And so he started studying chemistry. Now, one of the most famous things that he's known for is called Boyle's Law, which states down at the bottom here, initial pressure times initial volume equals final pressure times final volume. Now, that's most people in here, if you can think back to chemistry 101, that's one, that's one of the first laws you, you remember in chemistry. And that states that if I have a flask over here, if I have a, a small cup over here, and it's relatively small, and I have a bigger flask over here, and I put a corkscrew on top so they're both sealed, and I put the same amount of gas in the same type of gas. Let's say I put, I don't know, five, five milligrams of helium in this one and five milligrams of helium in this one in the gaseous form. And this is a bigger cup, remember, and this is a smaller cup. So this volume is bigger than this volume. Well, that means in the smaller volume, the pressure is going to be higher. And in the bigger volume, the pressure is going to be lower, and they would equal each other. That's what Boyle's Law states. And, and he, he's famous for that. He's famous for so many things. In Great Britain, there's such a thing known as the Royal Society, which is a scientific community of the most brilliant and genius men scientists. And he was the founder of that society. He founded the, the, the Royal Society in Great Britain, and he was the first president. He was an absolute genius. He studied chemistry, physics, uh, biology, geology, but chemistry is what he's most known for. And he's, he stated this. He said this, Sir Robert Boyle said, I use the scriptures not as an arsenal to be resorted to only for arms and weapons, but as a matchless temple where I delight to be, to contemplate the beauty, the symmetry, and the, the magnificence of the structure, and to increase my awe and excite my devotion to the deity there preached and adored. Man, these men had a walk with God. This man stood on creation when, when nobody else would. He was an outspoken creationist. And he parted ways with many of his colleagues when they started to go other ways. He stood for what was right. He stood for what was right, and he preached creation everywhere he went. He, he was able to use that, that career in writing tracts later down the road, and, and able, he was to write publications on creation versus evolution. I mean, th this man was, a, you talk about outspoken. Where are those people today? Where are those people today? He was outspoken for what he believed. Next, we're going to skip ahead a few years, uh, up to uh, 1882. This man, by the name of Charles Stein, he lived from 1882 to 1954. And he's really not known for too much. But he worked at a, at a, comp a company called uh, DuPont Chemical. Anybody ever hear of DuPont Chemical? He served as their first director of their chemical division. And when DuPont first started, they they were going to outsource their chemical division and have somebody else make their chemicals for them. And he went to the, to the owners and he said, no, we should make our own chemicals. And they said, all right, you're in charge. <laughs> and so he was in charge. And he, because of that, he was able to help produce some of the world's first synthetic materials. Just about everything today is synthetic. <laughs> I mean, you look at plastics, fabrics, everything is, is manufactured. And he was able to produce some of the first materials like that. He, he was a brilliant man. He authored a book by the name uh, entitled A Chemist and His Bible. A Chemist and His Bible. This man was an out outspoken Christian. He, he believed God for everything that he said. He believed God's word for everything that he said. And he said this. 
He said, the world about us, far more intricate than any watch, filled with checks and balances of a hundred varieties, marvelous beyond even the imagination of the most skilled scientific investigator, this beautiful and intricate creation bears the signature of this creator, graven in its works. And a man who spent most of his lifetime staring down a microscope was able to see the signature of the creator graven in its works. That, that, that just goes to show you, these men, these founding fathers of science, they studied it for what it was worth. They studied it for its creator, not to make themselves look better, but to raise the glory of God ever higher. That is why they studied science. That is why they published what they did. They loved it, and they loved him more. They loved him more. Next, we're going to look at biology. This is another major area of science. Biology. And the father of modern microbiology is a man by the name of Louis Pasteur. I'm sure many people have heard of Louis Pasteur. And, and he lived from 1822 to 1895. This man was an outspoken creation, one of the hardest working scientists that, that most, most scientific communities ever say there was. And he, he lived in France. He earned France's highest decoration, which is the Legion of Honor, for his scientific achievements. He, he worked extremely hard, and he was very well known for how, how brilliant he was. He disputed the theory, theory of spontaneous generation. And at that point in time, there was another, another scientist who was trying to promote evolution, and he believed that there was such a thing as spontaneous generation. You see, at that time, they didn't have many things that would seal up food. And so if you were to leave raw beef out on the counter... Uh, in a few days, you'd have, you'd have maggots crawling in that, in that raw steak, right? We see that today even. But they didn't know why those maggots were there. They didn't know how, how those maggots got there. So they believed if you just left any food out to rot, it would spontaneously form life. They, they didn't know any better. They couldn't study any better. And so he disproved this. By, by doing this, he, he had three flasks. He had three jars, and he put raw meat in all three of these jars, and they were open on top. And in the one he sealed. He put a cork on top, and he sealed it. And so that, that stake was sealed. And the second one, he put a net over, over the top of it. And the third one, he left wide open. And after a few days, the two that were open to air, they were both rotting at the same rate. The one that was sealed was not rotten at all. But the ones that were, were open, they were starting to, to decay in the smell. But the one without the net had maggots and, and, and eggs all over it. But the one with the net did not. So therefore, the only way those eggs could have gotten there was if flies. Why wouldn't the flies have gone to the second one? They couldn't get in. There was a net there. And that's how he was able to dis disprove spontaneous generation. Pretty simple. <laughs> you would think, well, how come nobody thought about that before? Well, I don't know. But he, he disproved that, that theory. He produced the, the pasteurization process for killing microorganisms in food and drink. We know this as pasteurized milk today. They use it in other, in other food and drink as well, in wine and in, in alcohol and in other foods and, and he was able to first come up with this process. Uh, by, by being able to study everything at a microscopic level, he was able to realize what was needed in order to kill those, those microorganisms. He stated this. He said, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. That's, that's a pretty simple statement, but how true it is. But how true it is. The more, the more you study the work of, of his hands, the more you study you know, the closer you get or the bigger you get, I don't care at what level you're studying it, the more you're amazed at how marvelous his works are, as, as, as Galileo put it. They truly are marvelous. They truly are marvelous. Another man who studied biology was a man uh, by the name of Georges Cuvier, and he also lived in France at that time. 
and he's known as the father of comparative anatomy. He is also known by many as the father of paleontology. He studied fossils, and, and he knew the biology and anatomy of, of many different animals, many different animals. And he lived from 1769 to 1832. He published his theory that each creature created by God is so well-designed, both functionally in their environment and structurally, physically, their bones, their muscles, that they could not survive significant change. In other, in other words, God created every being for a specific pur purpose in that specific realm that he created it in. And it had no need to evolve into something else. Therefore, it could not. It could not. And, and that's very true. I mean, God created whales to live in the water, not in the land. Right? And, and there's no need for them to evolve. If they were to evolve, then every single part of them would have to evolve at the exact same time, not small parts. And that's what he truly believed. He, he was the first to push the theory of catastrophism, which states that major catastrophes caused the earth, Earth's geology, a.k.a. the flood. He was the first to, to truly back that up with, with, with geologic and, and scientific evidence. He, he was also one he, he debated in multiple creation-evolution debates. He, he fought against so many people against this because at this point in time, evolution was really starting to take a run. And, and people really started to believe all the layers of the earth you know, were, were to add up to a long, long Earth's age. But he, he stood against that. He parted against multiple colleagues because they went to evolution, not creation. He stood for what was right. He made this statement. Thus, it cannot be denied that the masses which today form our highest mountains were originally in a liquid state. For a long time, they were covered by waters. I find that interesting because you don't find too many statements like that by geologists who believe that there was a worldwide flood. And, and, and this is one of the few statements by a, by a geologist or, or someone who studied biology even to make this statement. And, and he truly believed that. And as we talked about last week, there's evidence all over the world for that, all over the world. They believed it then. Why can't we believe it now? Why can't we believe it now? Next, we jump up to physics. We jump to physics. And we talk about a man by the name of Michael Faraday. He was an extremely, he was raised in an extremely poor family. He was raised in Scotland, and, and his father had passed away. He was raised by his mother. But he learned how to read and write in a Scottish Sunday school. That's where he learned to read and write. Uh, raised in church his entire life. A brilliant, brilliant man. He studied at, at the University of Glasgow. And he discovered electromagnetic induction, which states that, using magnets, you can create electricity. He was the first man to discover that. He was also the first to invent the generator by using that same process. By using magnets, he was able to create electricity. That's, that's pretty fascinating from a poor man from Scotland was able to discover that. This, some of these people, God clearly gave them a talent for what they did. I mean, it was only God who could have given them the, the brain and the knowledge and the, and the work ethic to do what they did. They were absolute brilliant men. He made this statement. Well, before I get to that, he also he developed the concept of magnetic lines of force. So whoever, I don't know if you ever had the experiment where you take a, a bar magnet and place it on a white piece of paper, and you take pencil shavings and you, and you throw it down in the magnet, it creates lines around the magnet. He first discovered that. He was the first to make that, that experiment. He was able to, to discover the further away you get from a magnet, the less force it has. There are, there are magnetic lines of force. He made this statement. The Bible and it alone with nothing added to it nor taken away from it by man 
is the sole and sufficient guide for each individual at all times and in all circumstances. Man, this guy was grounded in the Word of God. He was grounded in the Word of God. You don't hear this every day. You don't hear this every day. You never hear about a man who discovered, who discovered electromagnetic induction to make this statement. No, you just hear about his works. You don't hear about his life. And that, that's why I want to present this to you tonight, because we need to understand how they lived and what they believed in order to, to truly understand what they studied or, or what they proved. Finally, we look at a man by the name of Sir William Thompson. Um, or he's also known as Lord Kelvin. Lord Kelvin. He lived from 1824 to 1907. This man, he truly was a genius. He began studying at the University of Glasgow at age 10. Ten years old, he was studying, studying at, at a university level. He was brilliant. He produced his first published work at the age of 16 years old, stating that heat and electricity could be carried through a wire. I don't think I understood the concept until like two days ago. <laughs> I mean, he, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He, he was one of the first men to state this. And, and there was a man before this who stated this, but at the age of 16, he decided to, to study that out and experiment and, and, and observe and hypothesize, and he came up with the same result. And so he, he produced a paper, he published a paper about that. He developed the absolute temperature scale measured in Kelvins. And who here has ever heard of the Kelvin, uh, degrees Kelvin scale? So in, in degree Kelvins, <clears throat> in, in, in the scientific community, everything is related to degree Kelvins. It is the largest temperature scale in the world. And it, the, both Fahrenheit and Celsius are always reverted back to Kelvin when you're studying science. They, that's, that, that's how they are. I'm not sure if anybody here has ever heard of absolute zero. Absolute zero is zero degrees Kelvin. And when you hit absolute zero, mankind has never produced or never seen absolute zero. But at absolute zero, there is no movement anywhere. Microscopically, nothing is moving whatsoever. And many scientists see absolute zero as perfection, as the, the most perfect environment you can be in because there's no decaying whatsoever, there's no growth whatsoever, there's nothing. It's just stillness. It's stillness. And once again, we've never seen that, but he was the first man to discover this. He was the first man to discover this. He said this. <laughs> I find this funny. He used some sarcasm here. I cannot admit that with regard to the origin of life, science neither affirms nor denies creative power. Science positively affirms creative power. It is not in dead matter that we live and move and have our being, but in the creating and directing power which science compels us to accept as an article of belief. And, and I, I didn't capitalize that myself. He, he capitalized those words. That was his own writing. His own writing. He, he truly believed that, that everything that we study points to the creative power, to the creator. That's what he believed. And that's what all these men believed. So why, we come to the question, why did men begin to study science? Well, look at what they all had to say about the area of study. I mean, every single one of them had a statement of, of, and that wasn't their, their only statement. <laughs> I handpicked those. They made multiple statements about a creator, about his creative power, about putting the glory of God above their own. Every single one of them believed that. They all, they all had a unilateral, unilateral desire to understand not what most people call nature, but what, we're, what, what we realize is God's own creation. They wanted to understand it. They wanted to, to proclaim his glory to the world. That's why they published everything. They wanted to share it with the world. They wanted to show how glorious he was. 
And I tru truly believe that was why they wanted to study it. That is why they wanted to publish it. So what do we see today? We don't see this today anymore. People don't publish their findings, their works, because they wanted to glorify their Savior. No, they want to prove a point. They want to prove their own point. So, so when did this change begin? What happened? What happened? Somewhere down the line, things began to change. We started to understand things differently. <clears throat> In 1774, a man by the name of Comte de Buffon, I'd like to call him Comte de Buffon, but Comte de Buffon, <laughs> he was a mathematician and a naturalist. And he, he stated that the earth was around 75,000 years old. He was one of the first men to come out and say this. And he was extremely adamant. He was extremely vocal and forward about this. And, and not many men, a few men before that had believed that, but they were very quiet about their beliefs because they were the only ones in that scientific community to believe that the earth was older than 6,000 years old. And so he, he stated this, and, and he was extremely adamant. He was one of those you know, just rash guys who was always you know, trying to get, get in, in people's faces. Around the same time, a man by the name of Erasmus Darwin, this is interesting here. His name was Erasmus Darwin. He was Charles Darwin's grandfather. He published ideas of evolution and millions of ages before mankind in a book entitled Zoonomia, or The Laws of Organic Life. And when he published this, they were initially little rhymes and riddles, little short stories and essays, you know, just to be kind of cute and funny. But look, look at what the effect it had on his grandson. Look at the effect it had. Grandparents, you better be careful what you're teaching your grandkids. I'll just throw that in there. <laughs> that, I, found that, I found that interesting. He published that around 1794, and he published a few short stories after that to 1976. Around that same time, a Scottish geologist by the name of James Hutton introduced the theory of uniformitarianism, which is one of the most common accepted ideas today, which states that the present is the key to understanding the past. That was the first lesson I learned when I studied geology at, at a university level. The first lesson they taught us is the present is the key to the past. In other words, in this theory, the geology that we have comes from everyday processes. They don't come from rapid or, or ginormous events like the flood. So if the geology that we have today came from everyday processes, it would have to take millions of years in order for them to, fo to form, in order to, for them to grow and, and become what they are today. That, that was what he first came out with. And at, at first it was not accepted, but by the late 19th century it was. It was. And then a few decades later you have Charles Darwin who introduced his theory of biological evolution in the 1830s. In the 1830s. So what happened with these four, four men and, and with the many others that were there with them? They didn't put God first. They were out to prove their own point. They're out to prove what they thought was right, not what God knew was right. They, 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 they didn't put forth God's word first. They didn't go to God's word first and study that before studying the, the data that, that they studied. No. They had their own bias, their own opinion, and they wanted to push that on everybody. Not God. Not God. <clears throat> so then we look at down towards the end of the 19th century. And, and in the 1860s, Queen Victoria was reigning in England. And England at that time was still the most prevalent and powerful empire in the world, in the world, <clears throat> in the 1860s. And Queen Victoria is known as one of the greatest monarchs that ever lived and ever ruled in Great Britain. And around 1860, 1861, a young African prince came to her, and he asked her what the secret of the strength of Great Britain was. 
And, and the story goes that she did not take him to her armory. She did not take him to show her the armies or the navies that her country had. She didn't show him the, the people or the scientists that were behind her. No, she pulled a, a book out from behind her, and she gave him the Bible. And she said, this is the secret to our strength. This is the secret to our greatness. And after Queen Victoria passed away, there was not another monarch who believed the same way. And Great Britain fell rapidly. They fell rapidly. You, you, you go over there today, or yes, any missionary over there today, the, the amount of people who even know about Jesus Christ is mind-blowing. I mean, they, they're... In the country in which the King James Bible was translated, 400 years later, there's almost nobody there now that believes in God's Word. That believes in God's Word. The, the, the key is God's Word. The, 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 the key to our strength, the key to understanding everything else is God's Word. That comes first. That comes first. So, so where are we at today? Where are we at today? You look at scientists in, in, the, in the educational systems. Um, you know, who, who are studying research. The majority of them believe in evolution. We do have a few societies that are standing up for what's right. Look, look at the Creation Research Society. Now, I went on their website, <clears throat> and it's in a different language. I, I couldn't understand what they were saying. I don't know what they believe. I, I couldn't understand it. The American Scientific Affiliation, they're full of progress, uh, progressive creationists and, and theistic evolutionists. That, that, that's what they believe. Look at the, the Bible Science Association. Their numbers are rapidly dwindling. There, there's maybe a few dozen people involved in that affiliation now. The Institution for Creation Research and the Answers in Genesis, they put forth some good ideas, and they, they have a good, strong voice out there, but they back up a version of the Bible that is not right. That is not right. So who's, who's standing for it's right? Who do we have? Who do we have? I mean, if you look back at the beginning of science, and almost every single one of those men, they believed in God's Word. They studied God's Word first, and then they studied His creation. Who today is doing that? Who today is doing that? Maybe, maybe our educational system would not be where it is today if we had some teachers in, in, in the high schools and, and in the colleges that were teaching creation along with evolution. But we don't. But we don't. Maybe, maybe our, our next generation would be raised up and they would learn something about God, they would learn something about creation, about a creator, if there was somebody in the schools teaching those things. But we don't have anybody. There are no scientists out there that are studying what is right, that is putting forth a, a theory and, and a, not a bias, but they're putting forth God, the glory of God first. There's nobody out there like that. There's nobody. So we need another generation. We need another generation that's going to stand up for what's right. That's going to study his, his, his creation for the glory of God, not for their own selves. Not for their own selves. So they can publish throughout the world how great our God is. How great our God, our, our, our God is. And, and it's not for everybody. It isn't. It isn't. But I know that's where I'm supposed to be. Amen. I know that's where I'm supposed to be. The first week I remember, <clears throat> I, I, put this, I have this quote in front of my Bible. And it says this, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest expression every portion of the truth of God except precisely at that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. How, uh, I'm, I'm not con uh, confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To be steady and all the battlefield is beside is mere flight and disgrace. If he flinches at that point. If he flinches at that point. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Jude. 
Jude chapter 1. And at the end of last year, a pastor preached a lot uh, from this verse. Jude chapter 1, verse number 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. What does the word contend mean? It means to fight. It means to fight. It means to go in the offense. It means to put forth God's word first and not wait till the attacks come to you. And we're, we're supposed to defend God's faith. We are. But we're also supposed to fight. We're supposed to fight. Who do we have fighting in the schools? Who do we have fighting for, for God's creation, for promoting that? We need people to do that. We need people to do that. Are you with me? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for tonight, God. We thank you so much for your creation, God, for, for the amazing thing that it is. God, for the glory that you have and how it's shown through your works. God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. God, we love you so very much. God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I uh, take your Bible real quick? Look over the book of Romans chapter 1. Thank you, Brother Mark. That was excellent. Wasn't that encouraging to hear about how those original scientists not only supported, but, I mean, they believed in creation. But notice what happened in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse uh, 19. Because that, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. These scientists saw God in his creation, his Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But notice what it says, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Listen, the reason why the uh, scientific community today sees the creation the way they do is because their foolish hearts have been darkened. They don't see it the way you and I see it. They don't see it from the biblical perspective because they've chosen to reject God. And when you choose to reject God, whether it's in science whether it's in your life, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your marriage, you choose to reject God, there's only darkness in your future. That's what we learn. And that is why today there are so few that are wielding the sword and holding up the banner. Now, I'm going to make one other statement, and I think this is important for you young people especially to hear. There is Ignorance is never anything to be proud about. Don't, don't think you're doing God a favor by going out and you know, ditching your education. I think I'm just going to go ahead and read my Bible. You better learn your ABCs. You better learn about science and geology. You need to learn about mathematics. You need to take the time to learn some things that will enable you to combat the kind of things that you're going to face in life. Just like Brother Mark said, listen... I don't know about you, but when he stood up here, I thought to myself, thank God for a young man who said, I'm not going to be ignorant, I'm not going to be stupid, 
I want to know all I can know and learn all I can learn because what I know and what I've learned, I'm going to be able to use for God's glory. Now listen, you go ahead and say, well, I'm going to be a preacher anyway. I don't need all that junk. You're a fool. Come on, amen. You need to get in your you need to get on your knees and beg God for forgiveness and repent of that attitude because you've been given a tremendous amount of opportunity in the United States of America in which you live. And I don't care if you go to public school, I don't care if you're homeschooled. You need to dig in those books and you need to do the very best you can to learn everything you can because ultimately it'll prepare you and ready you for the battle at hand. Those men up there made a difference in their world because they took time to study and dig and learn about the world they lived in. And I'm telling you, I, I see it. it. It seems to just, it just gets on my nerve a little bit when I look at some of these young preacher boys that somehow think they can just kick away the, the, their education and act like all they got to worry about is learning the Bible. Let me tell you something. The men who know the Bible the most are men that had the guts and the fortitude and the discipline to learn their studies. Listen, let me tell you, don't think you'll study this if you ain't got the character to study your math and study your, your lessons at school. I'm telling you, don't fool yourself. Don't think it's just going to flip a switch one day. Well, I love the Bible. Yeah, until it's work for you. Just like your studies. All I'm saying is, I'm proud of Mark when he stood up here. And I thought to myself, I don't know what Brother Mark's going to do with his life. But I thought to myself, i got to figure a way to get that guy doing what I believe he needs to be doing. And I'm going to tell you what. There are other churches that need to hear these kind of things. And there are other groups of young people that need to hear these things. Maybe some of you out here might be the ones that one day will stand before hundreds and thousands of young people and adults and say, listen, I'm going to tell you what I've learned about creation. I'm going to tell you what I've learned about the world I live in. And it's not what the scientists are teaching. And you can actually intellectually reason with these people instead of just going, well, I just believe the Bible. Bless God, I believe the Bible. Well, that's good. Well, why do you believe it? And what do you have proof-wise to say that it's really God's Word? If you weren't impressed, young men and young ladies today, (laughs) under the age of 20, with what you saw up here today, then you obviously have no ambition in your life. You have no drive in your heart. You're, You're content to be a nothing and a nobody. You say, that's pretty harsh. Well, maybe it is, but maybe you need to hear it. If I talk to your parents today, I wonder if they'd tell me that you give your 100% in your studies. Or they'd say, man, they're slackers. They won't put forth an effort. They're so lazy. Can't even get them out of bed, let alone get them to study their math lesson. Well, what kind of Christian are you going to be then? Facing a world that has so-called answers. And we have no response. Because we're ignorant and we've chosen to be that way. Well, anyway, all I want you to know is it's worth learning. We never stop learning. And there's not an adult in here that doesn't need to try to learn more about what we're hearing about. Man, that was great tonight. Wasn't that encouraging, though? And I'll tell you what, we got some fabulous, wonderful young people here. But don't you throw away your, your futures because you think right now is all that matters. Man, put your nose to the grindstone. Learn something. And learn it well. And God will use you for it. God will bless you for that. And He'll honor that. 
Father, we 